know, today in our world, um, our ability to disseminate information is virtually instantaneous. We can transfer data like that. It's also well documented that human knowledge is increasing exponentially. But we as human beings are pretty much linear thinkers. So here's an example of exponential growth. Suppose someone offered you a choice. You could have $5 million today, right now. Or you could receive one penny today and double that every day for a month. So one penny today, two tomorrow, four cents the next day, then eight cents, and so on. Which would you choose? Well, if you choose the penny, on that last day, the 31st day of the month, you'd get $10,737,000 and some change. <laughs> and that means, and then that's added to what you've already gotten. So your grand total is going to be $21,474,836.47. That's the power of exponential growth. Exponential growth in knowledge must be good, right? Well, this rapid growth in knowledge prompted Isaac Asimov to say, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Now, wisdom is generally considered to be the practical application of knowledge and information. Charles Spurgeon put his own spin on that, though, and, and he defined it this way. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And <clears throat> if you look at that, if there's a right use, then there must be a wrong use. James, in our passage today, states that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's God's obviously the right kind, and there's man's, probably the wrong kind. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you're able, would you stand as we read God's word in honor of him and his word? We're going to start in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free from hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Heavenly Father, your word is precious to us. As we look into these words from James, may we see you clearly. Lord, would you give us insight 
so that we might apply your word to our lives, that we might be better equipped to serve you, and that we might be more fully um, experiencing your joy, the joy of the grace that you have blessed us with. Speak your truth to us, Lord. And we ask this for the glory of your kingdom and the honor of your name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, James is concerned that his readers live a life that is consistent with faith in Jesus Christ. And so in his letter, he gives us a series of tests, ways for people to tell whether they're living out true faith or not. In effect, ways to determine whether their faith is alive or dead. In chapter 1, he gave us tests on how we endure trials and temptations, on how we respond to the word of God. In chapter 2, he gave us a test about how, do, how we treat people. And then a big test. Does our faith manifest itself in good works? And in the first part of chapter 3, we saw that he gave us a test about our tongues. What do your words say about your faith? And now, James gives us, a, gives us another test. Wisdom. Is your wisdom human or heavenly? Now, we need to keep in mind that James' purpose in giving us these tests is not to condemn, but rather to encourage and to exhort us. In effect, like we just sang, to remind us of who we are to God. These tests are like trail markers, giving us assurance that we're on the right path. And at the same time, they can be a warning <clears throat> if we start to get off the path. We need to be sure, though, as we start this uh, passage, that we understand the historical and biblical context that's going on here. James was a Jew. He was also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And he was, was one of the prominent leaders of the early church. And he's writing this letter to fellow Jews, to fellow believers in Jesus. Now, did you notice that in the passage, James talks about wisdom, but he doesn't really give us a definition. He doesn't tell us what it is. He doesn't even tell us what it isn't. That's because the folks he wrote to already understood what wisdom was. They understood what the scriptures have to say about wisdom. That would be the Old Testament to us. And on top of that, some of those folks had been around Jesus. They were, they were there uh, at that event that Stephen just described to us. And so they had firsthand knowledge of what Jesus had said. And those with firsthand knowledge passed that along, that permeated throughout the community until there was reliable secondhand knowledge. So, what did these first century Jewish Christians understand about wisdom? Well, there's a whole section of the Old Test Testament called wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. 
Now, Ecclesiastes and, and the part of Job where his friends, friends are speaking, those really describe human wisdom. And most of the rest of the, that wisdom literature is describing God's wisdom. So we're going to take a, a little bit of a whirlwind tour here, and I'm going to jump around and give you a bunch of scriptures and, and go through some things really fast so that we, we're sure we have the same contextual view as the first hearers of this letter. So the first thing we want to look, about is, look at is what does scripture say about man's wisdom? Well, let's, let's think about Job and his friends. Job's friends expounded their wisdom of religion. Um, they explained things as they understood it. But what did the Lord say about them? He said, I am angry with you because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The friends proclaimed wisdom based on their own understanding, their own experience. They, they had God in this box, and that was what they saw. That was what they understood. And so that's what they tried to comfort Job with. So even though it was religious, even though they spoke often of God, it wasn't right. Ecclesiastes reveals human wisdom to be what? Vanity, vanity, or meaningless. Even Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, proclaimed, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. That's from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. So you see, Solomon goes on and he, he tells how he tried it all. He, he indulged himself in every pleasure. He did extravagant things. He had lots of possessions. He tried happiness in wine, women, and song. He built an empire. And at the end, he said, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. So man's wisdom has a wrong perception of God. It's short-lived and short-sighted. And from an eternal perspective, it's totally meaningless, foolish. It benefits man nothing. Isaiah, in chapter 5, verse 21, says this. Woe to, that's, that's literally God's curse upon those who are wise in their own eyes. Okay, that's man's wisdom. What about God's wisdom? Well, the first thing we can know about God's wisdom is that he is the only source of it. Only God can give true wisdom. Proverbs 3.19, the Lord founded the earth by wisdom. He established the heavens by understanding. Now think about that a second. If God used wisdom to create the universe, then wisdom is outside the created universe. Therefore, God has to be the source of the wisdom that predates creation. That's confirmed in Proverbs 8, in verses 22 and 23. Proverbs 8, this is another one of those chapters that, like Romans 6, 7, and 8, that you need to go back to and, 
and walk through. The, the entire chapter is basically wisdom speaking in the first person. So wisdom is saying here in verse 22, the Lord created me, wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From eternity I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. So God is the source of wisdom. And God gives wisdom. Look at Proverbs 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. There's a couple of examples of that that we could go to quickly. 1 Kings 4, verse 29. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and, every, and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Or how about Daniel? In chapter 1, verse 17, we find that, um, and as for these four youths, that would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every kind of literature and expertise. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then if we fast forward a few years, talking again about Daniel, we find Belshazzar, the king, um, saying this about Daniel. Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. God is the only source of true, true wisdom and he's the only one who can dispense it. Another thing we find about wisdom is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Back in Proverbs, Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Jump down to verse 29 of that same chapter and we find, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2, 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. One more. Job 28, verse 28. And to man he said, he being God. So God said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Did you get that? God said this. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Depart from evil, that is understanding. So what exactly does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, let's think a minute about what it's not. It's not living in dread that some capricious power is going to suddenly decide to smite you or to punish you arbitrarily. No. And it's not being concerned that every moment you're not worthy or that you need to perform certain tasks in order to appease some angry, vengeful God. The fear of the Lord is reverential awe. It's reverential trust. And what is trust? Well, that's putting your faith in something. So 
how about putting your faith in this one, this God that you revere? It's handing over your eternal soul to the Lord in the expectation that he will keep your soul safe forever. And what is that? Doesn't that sound like salvation? The fear of the Lord is the result of hearing about the one true God and then placing our trust, our faith in him. And this results in love for God. This results in a life which turns from sin, a life of obedience, a life that departs from evil, as we just saw in Job. True wisdom, then, is a mark of salvation. Listen again to wisdom speaking in Proverbs 8, this time from verse 34 through 36. Blessed is the person who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But one who sins against me injures himself. Now, all those who hate me love death. True wisdom is in every believer. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now jump to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 30. Paul says, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So if Jesus lives in the heart of the believer, and if the Holy Spirit is imparted to every believer, then the wisdom of God is in every believer. Now, wisdom is in the believer, but not necessarily complete. We continue to grow in the wisdom of the Lord, don't we? And you know what? Back in chapter 1 of James, he told us, if you lack wisdom in any application, in any circumstance, you know what? You can ask God and he will give it to you. True wisdom then begins with the fear of the Lord. And it isn't a question of how much you know, it's who you know, and whether you love him, that is God, and turn from sin. Men pursue everything, including knowledge and wisdom, but they can't find it. Because true wisdom only comes from God and is only given to the redeemed. Every believer has the wisdom of God, and this wisdom is integrated with salvation and is the mark of salvation. So this is some of the fundamental knowledge or the fundamental understanding of wisdom that James would have assumed that his listeners were going to already know. So now we're ready to actually look at James. So look first at verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? In the Greek, these are common words for 
knowledge and philosophy. And for the Greeks, there's a, there was a high level of academic, cerebral overtone that was associated with these words. But for the Jews, for the Hebrews, there was an understanding of applying knowledge to life. They're, they're very practical. And so James is saying, don't just say you're wise. Show it. Demonstrate it. Okay, James. Um, but how do we show that we possess the wisdom of God? Well, James gives us three ways. The first is good behavior. And this could also be translated as a beautiful style of life, a beautiful lifestyle. This is a very broad. This is general. This is overall. This is the way you live day by day, and it's the cumulative effect. So when observed over an extended period of time, the trials and triumph, through the trials and triumphs of life, your conduct is going to reveal the wisdom of God. Then he says specific deeds. This is the minutia of life. This is the detail. Each act is consistent with the whole life, and this is the evidence of the wisdom of God in your life. If you claim to have the wisdom of God, it will show in the totality of your life and in the smallest part of your life. There will be consistency. It won't be perfect, but it'll be consistent. The third um, indicator that he gives us is our attitude. It should be humility, if you're reading out of the NIV, or gentleness, if you're reading the New American Standard, or maybe you've got the English standard in it, and your word is meekness. Humility, gentleness, meekness. And that goes with wisdom. I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of the people that I run to, into that think they're really wise are also pretty arrogant. Now, James says that if you have true wisdom the wisdom from God, your attitude is going to be 180 degrees from arrogant. Now, sadly, there are professing Christians who think they're wise, who think they have all the answers. Their attitude is characterized by divisive spirits, by anger. And that kind of attitude does not reveal wisdom, at least not the true wisdom of God, because that wisdom demonstrates an attitude of meekness, gentleness, and humility. An attitude that the world considers to be weak. To be gentle, though, you do not have to be weak. To be humble, you don't have to be shy or retiring. A gentle man can be bold and tough. We should be gentle, even when we boldly set wrongs right. Paul instructed church leaders to be gentle as they correct sinning Christians. He points that out in Galatians and again in 1 Corinthians and again in 2 Corinthians. Paul also told Timothy that leaders must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, 
skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. But that term correcting, it carries a, a, a lot of strength. There, there's force in that correction, but it has to be applied gently. So, you think you're wise? James says, prove it. Prove it by your lifestyle, prove it by your day-to-day -day deeds, and prove it by your attitude. Next, James talks about human wisdom in verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Human wisdom is not from God. It has no relationship to God, no knowledge of God's truth. So James here first identifies the motive for false wisdom. He says, in your hearts. Motives spring from the heart, don't they? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, man, right there are your motives. Bitter jealousy, it carries the idea of harsh self-centeredness that basically produces a resentful attitude toward just about everyone. Anyone who disagrees with me is wrong. Anyone who differs with me is an enemy. If you disagree with me, if you differ from me, and you happen to be successful, I'm going to do everything I can to tear you down. There's an attitude of intense competition and conflict. Do you see that going on in the world today? And then there's selfish ambition. Simply put, wisdom not of God is going to be selfish. It's self-centered. The goal is personal gratification. And often that goal is, is, is realized at any cost. It's the goal of humanistic thinking. If you have such proud, loveless, self-centered motivation in your heart, then James says, stop arrogantly boasting. Well, boasting about what? Well, boasting about having the wisdom of God. If these motives are evident, if they characterize your life, stop claiming to possess a wisdom which you're not living. It's obvious that you're lying against the truth. There's a call here. Really, it's a command for us to take a look at our own motivation. In your heart, are you motivated by what is God-honoring? Are you motivated by love for God, by love for others? Do you display humility, unselfishness, or are you interested in fulfilling your own desires and satisfying your own longings? Let me give you a quick side note here. It's possible to do 
really good things with impure motives, for wrong motives. Someone might be generous with their time or their money, and it looks really good from the outside, and yet their motive may be to assuage their own guilt or to build up cosmic brownie points or to try and earn God's favor or simply to make themselves feel better or look better to the world. We aren't called to determine what's in someone else's heart. God already knows that, and he will handle it. But the bottom line, motive matters. And in the end, the totality of a person's lifestyle and behavior will be on display. The motives of human wisdom, then, are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But what are the characteristics? James uses three words here to characterize human wisdom. Earthly, natural, and demonic. Do these words ring a bell? What are the three enemies of every believer? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? That's pretty parallel. Saying the same thing there. So what does earthly mean? Well, earthly means constrained by time and space. Man is contained within this earthly vessel. Outside is God. Outside is God's truth, God's wisdom. Man on his own cannot rise above this material world. And this means that all of man's wisdom is contained by the fallenness of this world and the curse of man's own fallenness. Pride and self-centeredness, these are the curse of the fallen world. I deserve this. I live my own truth. I certainly can't be blamed. I worship the God within me. Or as Charlie Brown's little sister Sally said, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Well, that second word is natural. That, that indicates fleshly, sensual, as in the five senses. It pertains to the life of man, his humanness, his frailty. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 14, we find... The natural man does not understand what? The things of God. He's sensual. All of his feelings, his impulses, and appetites are again in this closed, fallen, corrupted, locked up system. Human wisdom comes from man's unsanctified heart, from his unredeemed spirit. And as a result, no matter what you employ, whether it's biology or sociology or psychology, how man is understood, how man's problems are comprehended, how solutions are devised, it's all coming from a purely humanistic, fleshly, sensual perspective. That's the wisdom of the world. It's earthbound. 
It's limited to the sphere of time and space and the fallenness of a corrupt humanity. At best, it's a reflection, a reflection of mankind's humanness, his flesh, his sensual character. It does not, it cannot rise above man's bodily impulses. The third thing Paul said is, is it is demonic. Human wisdom has a demonic source. Some of you might be old enough to remember Flip Wilson and how he, he had that line, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil didn't make him do it, but it probably put a thought in his head. Remember in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Satan promised Eve knowledge. And when she looked at the fruit, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Satan promises and prop excuse me. Satan promises and promises, but he never ever delivers. That's because he can't. Remember, demons, they're also locked in this same system that humans are. Consider what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Human wisdom has demonic roots. It leads humans into arrogant self-worship, indulgence to their natural impulses, into immorality and self-sufficiency, into denial of their very need for a savior, into denial that God even exists. Do you ever look around and worry about this world that we live in? How can it just keep getting worse and worse and worse? How, how can we stop this? Why does it have to go this way? Well, James is giving us an answer here. It can't go any other way because we have a whole civilization of people that are locked up with human wisdom. They don't have answers. They never can. They never will. So those are the characteristics of human wisdom. Demonic source, fleshly desires, and limitations in time and space and the natural world. So what are the results of human wisdom? Well, in verse 16, we read, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's those motives repeated, there is disorder in every evil thing. Now, the Greek word here for, for uh, disorder is completely unpronounceable. It means disorder coming out of instability, chaos, and confusion. And it's the same word that, that uh, is used in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, where, Paul, uh, where uh, James is talking about the impact of double-mindedness and the impact of an uncontrolled tongue. The same kind of instability and chaos, confusion and restlessness. Human wisdom will never produce harmony. It will never produce love because human wisdom is proud 
It's self-seeking, it's self-serving, it's self-indulgent, it destroys unity, it destroys fellowship, and it brings nothing but discord and chaos. We see that happening all around us, don't we? Anger, bitterness, lawsuits, divorces, divisiveness, people unable to get along with anyone who is different from them in any way. That's the result. That's the legacy of human wisdom. It ain't pretty, and it's not getting better. But it will get better when Jesus comes. Another result, James tells us, is every evil thing. Okay, James, that's kind of broad. What does that really mean? Well, it is pretty general, but it's actually pretty fitting because that word that's translated every evil thing can mean everything from, oh, that's worthless, to, oh, my goodness, that's vile. A fellow named R.C. Trench, he was the Archbishop of Dublin in the mid-1800s, explained it this way. It contemplates evil, not from the aspect of its active or passive malignity, but rather from its good-for-nothingness, the utter impossibility of any true gain ever coming from it. Did you get that? Out of human wisdom come disorder, chaos, confusion, instability, and absolutely no good at all. Well, hopefully that wasn't too depressing. Um, let's look at the flip side. Let's look now at God's wisdom. It gives us two whole verses on this. So let's look at verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free from hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what's the motivation for heavenly wisdom? Well, the, the wisdom from above is first pure. The implication is spiritual integrity, moral sincerity. And we know this because the Greek word used here is not the usual word that's translated pure. And this same word is used in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, to describe Jesus Christ. And you can't get any purer than that. The heart, again, where motives spring from, the heart of every believer has pure desires. And in their heart of hearts, every believer wants to love God, wants to serve him, wants to obey him. But remember Paul in Romans 7? <laughs> Even when I sin, I'm doing what I don't want to. The believer hates his sin and longs for what is clean, for what is holy for what is pure. By the way, we see that in the Beatitudes, don't we? Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as it's used here, that word see, 
That means to understand. Think about that for a minute. To understand God is true wisdom. And those who have true wisdom are those who have a pure heart. We touched on it earlier, but it's worth keeping in mind. James and these Jewish believers were very familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Ezekiel talked about the salvation of Israel. When God would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. The heart of stone consumed with self. The new heart of flesh consumed with purity. But wait, I, I have a new heart, but I still sin. That's because your new heart is still bound up in your old flesh. And that does cause conflict. Conflict that Paul aptly described when he said, in my inner man, I delight in the law of God. And in my inner man, I want to please God. And it's this ridiculous flesh that keeps messing up the desires of my inner man. James goes on and gives clear characteristics of human wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then, ah, that little word, then. It sets apart the word pure from the rest of this list. And that's part of why we can distinguish pure as a motive rather than just a characteristic. So moving on from motive, from the heart, to outward behavior, we find here a list of qualities that characterize true wisdom. And the first one is peaceable. Peace-loving, peace-promoting, peace-making. And what do we find in the Beatitudes in verse 9 of chapter 5 in Matthew? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The wisdom from God is not creating confusion or disorder. It's not self-absorbed. Well, the wisdom of God is peaceable. There will be no compromise of the truth of God. The next characteristic is gentle. Now, scholars and commentators have called this Greek word one of the hardest to translate into English. I call it the second hardest word in Greek to pronounce. It has the connotation of a humble attitude, of being steadfastly courteous and kind, patient in all circumstances, Circumstances that include mistreatment, persecution, being ridiculed, disgraced, and demeaned. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.10, another beatitude. James is saying what Jesus said. Those with heavenly wisdom are peaceable and they are gentle. And they don't seek revenge or retribution. They handle persecution and mistreatment with kindness. Thirdly, those with heavenly wisdom are reasonable. The King James says submissive. They're easily entreated. They're approachable. They're not stubborn. They're teachable. They're willingly obedient. They yield to persuasion. They're ready and able to recognize the truth 
and submit themselves to it. These are people who are willing to hear all sides of a question and yet not compromise their own convictions. They're able to disagree without being disagreeable. There's a, an implicit self-awareness here, and it fits well with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, again, the Beatitudes, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, those are the ones who are aware of their own spiritual needs, who have despaired of their own self-sufficiency. The poor in spirit are reasonable, and the reasonable are poor in spirit. Next, we find that heavenly wisdom is characterized by being full of mercy. I tend to think of mercy in terms of forgiveness, um, and that's certainly an aspect. But there's so much more. Mercy also includes concern for people who suffer. It, it, it includes reaching out with compassion. When people exhibit mercy, when they demonstrate kindness and compassion, it's another one of those beatitude attitudes. And we find this one in verse 7 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, what? Receive mercy. Blessed are those who are full of mercy. That's the wisdom of God. That's evidence of living faith. That's evidence of a transformed life. That's putting others ahead of yourself. Completely the opposite of human wisdom, isn't it? The fifth characteristic that James gives us is being full of good fruits. And that simply means all good works. Good fruits are the manifestation of what is good and noble and righteous before God. Much as those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness that Jesus said were so blessed in Matthew 5, verse 6. Jesus said they would be blessed and their hunger and thirst would be satisfied. Unlike the wisdom of man, which never satisfies, the wisdom of God does satisfy. It fills. The next characteristic is unwavering. That's how the uh, New American Standard translates it. Translates it. The King J James says without partiality. The NIV and the ESV say impartial. So unwavering in commitment. No vacillating. Completely consistent regarding everyone as the same before the Lord. In the previous chapter of James, he talked about partiality, about favoritism, how the rich were getting preferential treatment even in the church. And what did James say about that? He said, among believers, this must not be so. There's no room for that kind of behavior in the church. And we find a parallel in the teaching of Jesus. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount, but not quite in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men 
that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's the testimony of unwavering wisdom from heaven. Men will see it. They'll see the results. They'll see the good works, and they will give glory to God. The final one, number seven, without hypocrisy, utterly sincere, genuine, no pretense, no fakery. A truly wise person manifests a genuine, sincere lifestyle. Their behavior bears that lifestyle out. Christ, Christ is the embodiment of this, isn't he? Of course, he's the embodiment of all these characteristics. And since Christ is our wisdom and has taken up residence in our lives, then these characteristics, they become yours. They become mine. When a person claims to have true wisdom and that person has true motives and their behavior reveals a love for making peace along with humble, patient, non-vengeful spirit, a sweet reasonableness, a willingness to yield in obedience, a habit of merciful, compassionate acts toward others, an undivided commitment to God's to God, God's truth without partiality. And when all of this is sincere and genuine, James says, that person, that person shows that they have true wisdom, heavenly wisdom. Now, maybe when you look at your life, you wonder, maybe you think, well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not convinced I have all that. What if I don't have enough? Well, the point is not whether you have all that you ought to have. No one does. The point is, is there enough to show that you have living faith, that the life of God is within you? You're never going to have as much as you ought to have. Not in this life. The real cause for concern is if there's no evidence at all. So what are the results? What does this heavenly wisdom produce? Verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right away, we notice that fruit is a product of life. Living faith produces fruit, and fruit has the seeds to produce more fruit. So as we share the fruit of heavenly wisdom with others, they're fed, they're satisfied, and they in turn bear more fruit. What, are, what we are is what we live, our lifestyle and behaviors. And what we live is what we sow. And what we sow determines what we reap. If we live in God's heavenly wisdom, we sow righteousness, and peace, and we reap God's blessing. If we live in human wisdom, we sow bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and we reap confusion and every evil work. James follows a clear line of thought through his letter. If you profess to be a Christian, you show it by living like a Christian. There's not a clearer proof of living faith than the kind of wisdom 
revealed by your lifestyle behaviors. Heavenly wisdom, that wonderful gift of God, will be revealed in the way you live. It'll be manifest by a purified heart in humble, peacemaking deeds of righteousness. And those deeds will reproduce themselves. James says, that's how we know whether or not we have the wisdom of God. And he challenges us to ask ourselves, do I have it? Do I have the wisdom of God? The character of your life, the deeds you do, your attitude, they're going to provide the answer. And there's only a couple of answers. Human wisdom, heavenly wisdom, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe you're mostly in the human wisdom area, but you've been around Christians so long that you've picked up some of their habits. Or maybe you're more in the heavenly wisdom area, but you've been toe-dipping around the world so long that you've picked up some of their habits. Either way, this isn't where you want to be. Do y'all know what a mugwump is? person who has his mug on one side of the fence and his wump on the other. You don't want to be a mugwump. If you're not sure which side of the fence you're on, then you know what? You can simply go to God and ask him to make it clear to you. If you ask and if you will listen, he will show you. He will respond. True wisdom is manifested in a beautiful lifestyle. The entry into heavenly wisdom is only through faith in God, through Jesus Christ. We are saved into wisdom. We possess the revelation of wisdom, and we are indwelt by the teacher of wisdom, the Holy Spirit. And if we lack wisdom for any application, if we lack wisdom in any circumstance, we may go to God and ask, and he will give us wisdom for that circumstance, for that application. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul offers some very practical words. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Are any of you wise? Show it. Would you stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh mighty God, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful for the way that it ministers to our spirits. Would you grant us all the courage to examine our own hearts to see whether heavenly wisdom abides there? Lord, we ask that if there are some here today who are still living at that level of human wisdom, may they be translated, transported from the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God by fearing you and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may the world see in us true wisdom, wisdom which transforms us, wisdom which is first pure and then peaceable and reasonable, gentle, full of mercy and good fruits that never wavers and never knows hypocrisy. 
and that is always sincere. Oh Lord, we echo the words of the old hymn, Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I in thee one. Oh Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us so much. In the name of Jesus, we come before you. Amen.